I should give y'all a warning, but uh, I don't know what time it is. Y'all are late, and um, I could tell how much fun y'all are having talking. Reunion time, so that's good. I want to um, thank everybody for being here. They told me uh, the crowd like a little bit bigger than it was last week. And if it goes back down, then it's all my fault. So what I need is a commitment of about four weeks in this, okay, at least. And then you can, then you can decide it's terrible. Um, but I'm thankful to be here this evening, thankful to be with you guys. I want you to know before I pray, I absolutely love Wednesday night. Always have. Wednesday night's been a night in church life for me that has always been a special night. I love being in it. It's usually good family night, fun. Um, I remember back in the days, nowadays parents like to get home and get their kids in bed early. Y'all know what I'm talking about? But back in the day, like, choir practice didn't start till 7.30. And so we had to play, we had to run to the church because all the adults was in, were in choir practice. So we got to go anywhere we wanted to go for a whole hour or more, and that was fun. And we got in trouble, but we knew how to hide when we did something wrong, and uh, we were able to handle that. But I'm, I'm thankful to be here. I love Wednesday night. I love this opportunity for us to be together, and uh, we're going we're gonna to look at some things tonight, kind of a little bit of an overview as we get started, and I'll explain that here in a minute. But let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin. Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us, your kindness. We thank you for this evening. We thank you for... Uh, the fact that you've allowed us to be here. And God, we, we recognize um, in this that uh, this is your provision. We recognize, Father, that you're the one that has brought this crowd here tonight. You're the one who has, has put us in this room all together. Everybody's got different stories. Everybody's coming from different places. Everybody's had a different kind of day. But now we have all gathered in this one place, Father, and this is by your design. And so we just come now and we ask you to, to help us, God, mold us, shape us, help us to be stronger and more, more faithful to your word. Help us, to, help us, God, as a people to grow close together as we grow closer to you, Father. We thank you for your word. And as we get ready to gather together around your word, I, I, I just want to express, Father, just how thankful I am that we, that we have your word. What a gift it is to us. And so let us not take it for granted. Let us spend time studying it. Let us spend time knowing it. Let us spend time together hearing it proclaimed, all for your glory and all for your name. We ask all of this in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. So my tendency on Wednesday nights everywhere that I have uh, been is just to start teaching through the Bible. I'm literally Genesis 1-1. And then we just keep going. The last church I was at, we made it to Deuteronomy chapter 6, seven years. And so uh, um, that tells y'all something about it, okay? And, um, but my intention is for us to see as we just get going. Sunday mornings, we'll have series. We'll look at different places. We'll go to different things, always going to God's Word. So we'll be looking around there. But Wednesday night, you can just rest assured we're going to just keep plotting through God's word together, okay? You'll know where we're going. You'll know what we're doing. There'll be times where we'll take a chapter at a time, sometimes maybe even a whole stretch. There'll be times where we'll do a verse at a time, just depending upon what 
you know, is going on in that passage, maybe what's going on in our world, trying to understand it, and then trying to put it even in more so in a big picture for us and, and, and see how, what God's doing here and what does this mean. This allows us to get to passages sometimes that we would never touch in a million years. You know, if I'm picking passages... I'm probably not going to, to Genesis chapter 6 where it talks about the sons of God with the daughters of men. I'm probably not jumping in to, to, to Genesis 37, 38 when it talks about Judah and Tamar, which is a kind of crazy story. Y'all can read ahead if you want to. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm probably not jumping into some of those places that are not as glamorous or as intense uh, of, of, of passages that are easy for us to preach um, if I don't do it this way. So I want to confine myself, if you understand, to the Word of God. And if we truly believe, if we truly believe that this Word that we have is God's Word, breathed out for us, and we truly believe that every verse in the Bible is meant for our edification and our um, um, teaching and training us up for godliness, then we ought to go to every verse. And so this is a way that I just plan on doing it, okay? And so that's what it'll be. And you can get that under understanding um, and, and, and be a part of it, and we'll just keep working through it together. Some of you may tell me to speed up, and I'll say I love you too. And um, <laughs> some of you may tell me to slow down, and I'll say you better catch up. You know what I'm saying? So we'll just kind of work, work through it together. But uh, that's what we're going to do. Tonight is going to be a little bit of an introduction. And to be honest, I want to watch my time because I can introduce for a long time if I have to. But I want to watch my time because I, I want us to kind of get just, if you're training for a marathon, right, which, by the way, I have never done it. And, and, and go ahead and promise y'all, go ahead and put that on. Well, I better not say it because that would be crazy. But I plan on never doing a marathon. I'd lost my mind if I have. Um, every time I ran in my life was for punishment. So I don't think I'm going to pick it up again. Um, and I hadn't ran since 1998, so that means I haven't ran since the last millennium. So um, if you're training for, uh, that's, that's kind of what we do on Wednesday nights. I'll say something crazy or dumb. If you're training for a marathon, you got to warm up. Let's stretch a little bit. You're getting ready to exercise. We're training for this. We kind of got to warm up and stretch a little bit. That's what tonight's going to be. This is probably stuff you already know, probably things you already, you've, been, you've had for a long time, but we're just going to kind of stretch our legs a little bit and get acquainted with God's Word, okay? Just kind of get acquainted with what this is that we have in front of us. And if I'm doing that, then we need to understand what the Bible is. Uh, the Bible is a collection of 66 books, 66 books. Everybody knows this. 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. It's a collection of 66 books. Uh, some of the stuff I'll talk about tonight, actually, I talked about a little bit last Sunday in my sermon. It's just going to be a little bit of repeat for you, but not much. It's a 66 books. It was written over a period of 2,000 years, um, give or take, 1,400 to 2,000 years, just depending on where you may date something and that, that doesn't doesn't um, change anything. So written over a period of 2,000 years, it has about 40 human authors. So though it has 66 books, for example, the Apostle Paul wrote 13 books in the New Testament, okay? So about 40 different authors, and it was written in two main languages. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek, as it was written in its original languages, 
which tells us again that this 66 books are divided into those two testaments. Those are all easy stuff. We, we know all of this. When you think about the Old Testament, like I said, there's 39 books in our English Bible. I made mention of this this past, um, this past uh, week because whenever you read the Scriptures, it's important to remember the Old Testament is divided into three sections. And in our English Bible, the first section is the book of history, really. And so that includes the, the law, the first five books, all the way through Esther. It takes us not just through, uh, the law includes, you know, as we read the law, the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, and then you add in after that Joshua, Judges, Ruth, all down the line. This is the history of Israel. So it takes us from beginning to end there, really, with the history. And so that's the first section in our English Bible. The next section is the poetry section, which is Job. And, and many of you, if you have uh, most of our Bibles, you can tell. Your Bible will be divided up in things like when it's prose, it'll be traditional paragraph style. When it's poetry, you know, it'll kind of be like the Psalms where it's all kind of, you can see, written out line by line, and you can see the difference. And, and so the Bible is divided up in that, that poetry sign. Job really goes through the Song of Solomon. So that section there. And then finally, the prophets, Isaiah through Malachi. Isaiah through Malachi. Now, the reason why I, I mention this is because I mentioned this in my sermon last week. Jesus says everything written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He's using the three sections of the Hebrew Bible that they use. Same books, not different books, same everything about it. The Hebrew Bible just refers to them in different ways and puts them in a different order. Does that make sense? And so as we have it, the law being Genesis to Deuteronomy, the prophets being the Former prophets are the greater prophets and the latter prophets, and then the writings, psalms, um, and the poetry literature that we talked about. And so you have that section. There's a passage there where Jesus talks about the death of, of uh, Abel, which was the first death in, in the Old Testament, all the way to the death of, and I think it was, it was a, a, a man by, by the name of, I better not call it, all, all the way to a death of a prophet that he mentions. And if you look at it in the Hebrew Bible, what Jesus is saying is from the first death in the Old, in the New, Old Testament excuse me, to the last one. And so we miss that in our English Bibles because we changed up the order a little bit. But we understand he's saying from the beginning to the end in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible. So we have three sections, 39 books, history, poetry, prophecy written in Hebrew. And then we have the New Testament. The New Testament contains 27 books, and the language was Greek, really what's referred to as Koine Greek, which meant the language of the people. There would be a Greek that you would use when you were writing that would be different sometimes, a more educated Greek, rather than the Koine, what you would talk and how you would use. So it's used in the language of the people. It was written entirely in that first century A.D., um, when Jesus came, died on the cross, rose again, and then started writing. Usually, some people uh, kind of say Mark's gospel was first around 55 A.D., about 20 years after Jesus. And then from 55 A.D. up till they want to time out John and the book of Revelation around 95 A.D. So all of it there in that first century. The New Testament's divided up into the gospels, as you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, 
and John, and then the book of Acts kind of stands alone as your history um, book, as, as uh, Luke writes that. Then you have the epistles, and you start with the Pauline epistles, so the, uh, the ones that Paul writes. The order those are put in is simply by length. The order that they're put in is by the longest one first, right? And so you have the longest one being Romans, and then you move down to 1 Corinthians. They throw 2 Corinthians in there because it goes with it. And then you have Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians on down the line. So it's just the longest one was put toward the front, and then it was shorter as they go all the way down to um, Philemon. And then you have uh, the general epistles. So you have the, the letters of Paul. Then you have just the regular letters, which starts with Hebrews, the longest one. And then you go to James, and then you go to First and Second Peter, First John, Second John, Third John, and Jude. And then finally, you have the Book of Revelation, which is the end, the apocalyptic book. Now, the Hebrew Bible was settled. This is what they knew. This was the book that that was the Hebrew Bible for years. Uh, I do want to mention just something that may be helpful to you. How did we get the New Testament? What was the standard by which a book was put in the New Testament? Right. It's real simple. Just three simple things that we do. The New Testament was written by the apostles. It was written by the apostles. So someone was a disciple, and then those disciples really became the apostles, right? Y'all remember this. And those apostles switched, that idea switched whenever they were commissioned by the resurrected Jesus to go out and do something. And so Jesus says it will be, in John 17, it will be upon these that the world knows, right? So our New Testament is built is, is done by the apostles. But I want to mention that. So first, a book gets in the New Testament if it was written by an apostle. Matthew, John, um, Paul is called the apostle, uh, Peter here. So you have that. But some of our books in the New Testament weren't written by apostles, but they were written by someone close to an apostle. So Luke, who studied with Paul, wrote Luke in Acts. And, and then you, you have James, who was the half-brother of Jesus wrote James, not James the, the, the disciple, but the book James was written by the half-brother of Christ who became the pastor of the church there in, in um, Jerusalem. You have Jude the same way. These were people that were closely related, discipled by one of the apostles, learned from one of the apostles. So a book in the New Testament is either written by an apostle or written by someone who was close, close to an apostle, closely related, discipled by them. And then the third... You have one book that kind of stands out. We're not told who wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, we don't, we're not told. I've got, I've got some stuff in my library. I've got one thing where this guy argues for two volumes, literally a thousand pages, that Hebrews was written by Luke, right? And then another one argues that it was written by Paul. And some say it was written by Apollos, one of the members with Paul that traveled with him. But Hebrews is a book that doesn't tell us. But when we look at Hebrews, we find out that it does not contradict anything, anything that the apostles taught or believed, right? And so when you, when you look at Hebrews, it lines up with all the teachings of the apostles. There was uh, some other books that may have been considered, but they did not line up in every aspect with the teaching of the apostles. They were different. Hebrews does. And so when you count the New Testament, you really had this, this triage here to say, First, it had to be written by an apostle. Second, it had to be written by someone close to an apostle. Or third, it had to be completely in line from beginning to end with the apostles and what they taught. And that's how we got our New Testament. Our New Testament, by the way, some people like to argue that it took you know, 200 years to figure it out. Really, to be honest, 
as early as the end of the first century, everybody knew what the New Testament was. Um, it was recognized a little bit later and, 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 and shown that, but everybody believed and knew which one. They, Peter even writes, who was a contemporary of Paul, and if you remember, Peter and Paul had a little scuffle one time um, in, in the book of Acts, and it's laid out. Paul talks about it in Galatians, but Peter even says with his contemporary Paul that the writings of Paul were the words of God, right? So even they recognized amongst each other these things. That's how we got our Bible. That's how we got it. Now, to move to this next part then, is while this book we have then, that we, we all have in front of us, some of y'all some of y'all fancy people have it on a tablet, and y'all, that's good. Um, this book we have is 66 books written over a period of 2,000 years with roughly 40 human authors. And so some ways you would have to think to be written over that length of time by that many different people, by that many different people, you'd have to think that there would have to be some diversity in this, right? You'd have to think that there may be some contradiction even here. How did they get this all right? How did all of this happen? And you have to step back then and let's examine what we have here. This that we have is not just, as I said this this past Sunday, this is not many books put into a collection. This is one book. One book from beginning to end, cover to cover, right? And as the old preacher says, sometimes I'll even preach to cover. It's, it's so, it's, it's, and so it's one book from beginning to end. It's not a book of quotations. We kind of fall into that temptation that we just think this is, a, this is like a Bartlett's book of quotations and we pull these out. It's not, it's not like that at all. Like I said this past Sunday, this is not like the collection of some famous writer that has thrown together a bunch of different books and you kind of put them all together. That's not what's happen happening here. This is not just a book of quotations. In fact, you may not know this, but... The Bible was not divided into chapters and verses until the 16th century. Until the 16th century. The Bible up until that point had no chapters and verses. And when it was written in the original, it didn't have chapters and verses. In the 16th century, some persecuted Christians from England under the persecution of Bloody Mary had to flee to the continent to Geneva. And when they went to Geneva, they needed a Bible that they could trust and translate so they can read it themselves, having been run out of their town. Bloody Mary killed about 300 Protestants, Christians at that time. They ran. When they got to Geneva, they took the, Engl the Bible, translated, had it translated into English, and they divided it up into chapters and verses so they could have a study Bible. So the Geneva Bible in 1555 was the first study Bible. And, and there, if you're going to have a study Bible, you have to have a way to quickly reference your notes at the bottom to where they belong. And so they divided the book up, the Bible, into chapters and verses. You will hear me at times complain about the chapter and verse divisions in the Bible. And you'll hear me, believe you me, I'm complaining about the way they're divided up. I think it's crazy, by the way, and we'll get to this soon because it's coming up. So at least two years from now, in Genesis chapter 2... In Genesis chapter 2, I think it's crazy that the seventh day is in chapter 2, not in chapter 1. That doesn't make much sense to me. But that's the way they originally divided up. Know that the chapters and verse divisions are not inspired by God. Okay? Does everybody understand what I'm saying? They're added, they're added later. 
So it's not just a book of quotations that we sometimes do because we have divided them up into verses. We simply pull them out sometimes. These things are a part of a whole. They're a part of a greater whole. So it's not just a collection of books they must be, that, that can be read separately. They must be read in reference to each other. People always say, well, let's go to Revelation as quick as we can. Remember, I got that completely out of the way the first week I was here. But they say, let's go to Revelation as quickly as we can. But you've got to understand, that's like saying, and I want to be honest here, that's like saying, let's get to the last chapter in this book and skip over everything that happened before, right? Because the book of Revelation quotes and refers to the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Testament, excuse me, quotes and refers to the Old Testament more than any other book in the New Testament. In fact, it quotes and refers to it more than any other book in all the other books in the New Testament combined. So you can't read the book of Revelation without having some understanding of what's happened. Because that's the way the Bible works. It's tying up everything that has come before it. It's putting everything together. You don't understand the significance of Revelation 7 when the nations are gathered around the throne unless you understand the significance of Genesis 11 whenever they were spread out at Babel. You can't understand those things unless you know what has happened before. You don't get why John is thrilled to hear the elder tap him on the shoulder and say, do not weep for the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. Well, how do you know what the lion of the tribe of Judah is unless you know Genesis 49 and know the promise? It's just like anything else. We oftentimes tend to pull things out. John 3.16 is a great example. For God so loved... Well, who is God? Which God are you talking about? We're talking about the God who spoke everything out of nothing. How do you know who that is unless you know Genesis 1? What does it mean by his son? Is this somebody that was born? Is what does this look like when you're talking about his son? What does this mean? Well, we're talking about the one who is the true son of God, the one who is the son of promise, the Messiah who was coming, right? And so you can't really understand these passages until you understand what goes on before, ultimately. In our culture and time, we have a pretty strong, now it's getting less and less, but we have a pretty strong biblical literacy. You know what I'm saying? We kind of know the Bible. We pretty much know some of the stories. That's going away, by the way. And we should never presuppose that about anybody we meet. But we have some knowledge of the Bible, so we're able to pull verses out because when we do, our minds are working to remind us of what came before and what happened before. But we need to remember that this Bible that we have is not just to be one thing pulled out to, to, and done. It's to be understood as one book from beginning to end. And that one book has one author. That one book has one author. Now, I know I just said it's got 40 human authors over 2,000 years, but we need to know that the Holy Spirit is the divine author of Scripture. From beginning to end, while Moses wrote the first five books, he did so under the inspiration of the Spirit. Joshua may have wrote the book of Joshua. He did so under the inspiration of the Spirit. All the way down to John in the book of Revelation, he did so under the inspiration of the Spirit. So the way that we have 66 books with 40 human authors written over, over uh, 2,000 years, and we have it as one book and one story is because it has one main author, and that's the Holy Spirit who's inspired all of it. Now, there's a couple words I want to throw at us real quick to understand this, if I can. A couple words here. One is that word of inspiration. What does it mean when we say the Bible is inspired? The Bible is inspired. This means that all of the words of Scripture 
are God's words. All of the words of Scripture are God's words. It does not mean that they come to us just simply by dictation. Is that right? Does everybody understand what I mean? Sometimes they do. Sometimes God says, write this down, right? But that does not mean of a dictation view, as if, as if they come just by, by these men that were writing this book were all like secretaries just typing out what God was saying. That's not what inspiration necessarily means. It means that God providentially oversaw the writing of all of Scripture, and he used human personality, he used cultural context, he used writing style of the author, he used all of that, he used all of that to bring about exactly what he wanted to be written. He used the authors. Into, in fact, it tells us, Luke tells us that he went and he did research. Luke went and asked all the apostles that saw him, all of the eyewitnesses. He went and asked them what took place. He got all those stories by asking others what happened, right? And so in doing this, God's providentially overseeing the process by which Luke gathers information and writes that information down so that whatever Luke does, he's doing it through his own personality, through his own um, journalistic abilities, through his own cultural context, through his own position. He's doing it all through that, and at the same time, everything he's writing down is God's words, what God wants him to write down. That's what inspiration ultimately means. All of their life was poured into the writing of the text, through the Holy Spirit, and produced exactly what God wanted to be produced. When we talk about inspiration, we talk about the, the uh, verbal plenary inspiration. In other words, every word is inspired by God. Using the human personalities that they have, using the context that they're in, using their gifts and talents, using, you can read it. If you read John's Gospel, it's a lot easier to read than, than some of Paul's stuff. They, they write differently. Their style is different. Sometimes Paul would have sentences that are literally, like in our Bibles, that are literally seven and eight verses long in our Bibles. It would be one sentence for the Apostle Paul. They're using their own personalities, their own styles, but the Spirit is using all of that to make sure whatever comes out is exactly what the Spirit wants to come out, inspiring it. This is what we call concurrence. It's this, God is working with human personality to bring about what He wants to bring about. By the way, this happens all the time in Scripture, right? We see uh, John, uh, Joseph says this in Genesis when he looks at his brothers, and what does he say? What you meant for evil... God meant for good, right? You're doing what you wanted to do, when you want to do it, how you want to do it, and at the same time, God was working what you were doing out for his own good. It's the same way we understand inspiration. You're writing down what you want to write down as you use your gifts and your talents. At the same time, God is inspiring it such that everything written down is what he wants to be written down and inspired. That's what inspiration means. Therefore, there's a couple other words that we bring into this. We bring in a word called inerrancy. Inerrancy. That means that simply means that the Bible is free from error. Because this is God's book, God's word, the Holy Spirit is the offer, author, or the offer. I don't know, sometimes that just I mess up talking. Um, this is God's word, and God's word comes to us without error. Inerrancy points to the truth of the word, points to the truth of the word in every way. We say the Bible is trustworthy. We say the Bible is reliable. We say the Bible is correct. We say the Bible is accurate, right? 
We say all of these things about God's Word. If the Bible's not in error, it can't be any of those things. It can't be any of those things. Now, we need to understand what inerrancy means. We do not need to confuse inerrancy with precision. We do not need to confuse inerrancy with precision. In fact, um, precision may happen. It may happen, but that's not exactly what inerrancy means. Some people try to disprove the Bible by using these points. They try to disprove it by saying, see, the Bible is wrong here. But they have an improper view of what inerrancy means. For example, there's things in ordinary language and in everyday people use that is not exactly precise, but it's still true, right? When, when the sun came up this morning, what did we say? We saw the sunrise. Now, we all in this room know the sun doesn't rise. It stays still. But it would be really awkward to say, honey, look at how the earth has spun in such a way that we are beginning to see the sun this morning properly. You know what I'm saying? That would be odd. We don't talk like that. That's, that would be more precise. But by saying we saw the sunrise is not error. That's not wrong. That's what we saw, right? In other words, inerrancy allows us to speak from our own position. For, for example, the Bible speaks of numbers all the time. Not the book of numbers, but it tells like how, how many people were there and how many people were gathered and all this and throws, throws numbers out. So counting numbers. But when we say things like there were 8,000 people there, we recognize that we probably haven't counted every single one of them. If there were 7,900, then we could say there's about there's 8,000 people there, and that would be accurate, an accurate view. Now, if there were 16,000 people there, that would be different, right? But if we recognize we haven't probably counted, or how do we do age? I am 46 years old, but that's not precise. I'm 46, one month, 15 days, and about four hours. But that would be weird to say every time we ask how old we are, right? And so we don't speak like that. We don't think precision by, by imprecise. Being imprecise does not mean it's wrong. Does not mean it's wrong. And many people try to say this and say, see, the Bible is, um, does have errors in it because it says the sun rose. Or consider where Joshua, when it says what? When it, with Joshua, the sun stood still. We all know what happened that day. An even greater, incredible thing, the earth stopped rotating. Right? But from Joshua's perspective, what did he see? The sun stood still. And that's, that is true. That's true. And that's what inerrancy finally comes down to. The problems, if you don't believe in the inerrancy, even in the small issues, is we recognize that that means if this is God's word, then God could lie in small things, right? But what does the Bible tell us? God cannot lie, right? So, Ultimately, we have to come to the scriptures to say that, that this is God's word and it's truthful and it's trustworthy and we can count on it. If we don't believe in inerrancy, then the trust in God's word really is lost. Because the way this works and we understand it is that if it's wrong in one thing, it could be wrong in anything. If it's wrong in one place, then the possibility is it can be wrong in every place. And even if it's wrong in the smallest of things, then the idea is could, it could be wrong in the greatest of things as well. And when that happens, then we lose the trust we have. And then what happens? If we say it's wrong in some places, what actually becomes the standard of everything? 
our own opinion, our own mind. If we say, well, it's wrong there, then we're actually the ones who are picking and choosing where it's right and where it's wrong. We become the arbitrators of truth at that point. We think we're establishing ourselves in such a way that we know better than God and we're wiser than he is. We can't trust his word. And if it's wrong in small matters, then it's wrong in doctrine. We know that because the Bible is inspired by God through the Holy Spirit, because of that, it is absolutely trustworthy and it is without error. Now understand, we also have a Bible in front of us that is not in the original language that the Bible was in, right? We ha this has not been handed to us easily. When we talk about inerrancy, I'm saying that the Bible itself, written in the original languages, Hebrew and Greek, was without error passed down to us. And throughout the centuries, and without going into the whole process of, of how translations work, throughout the centuries, as we look to this word, we recognize as it's been translated, that it's been after pursuing a translation that is in, as close as possibly can be with the originals. And if we want to go ahead and lay how that works out, we can say that the Bible is the most trustworthy translation in human history. How do we know that? Homer. Homer wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. Y'all all, all, all read those. Some of y'all read them last year. Some of y'all read them 100 years ago. We have two copies, two partial copies that puts the Iliad together, right? That date about 300 years to when it was originally written. Two. Nobody questions whether or not it's what Homer wrote because we have two copies. With the Bible, the New Testament has over 500 manuscripts written within a 150-year time of when it was originally written. The amount of evidence we have is massive where I'm willing and trustworthy to say that what we have in front of us in our English Bibles is 99.9%, 100% accurate, right, of what God's Word is and trustworthy for us. And we trust in those who made those decisions, but we must be honest that this is not written in the original language, so it's been passed down to us, and it is trustworthy. It is trustworthy. The Bible is inerrant, without error, but there's another word. It's infallible. Infallible means it's incapable of error. So, so it, we have it being inerrant, but we also mean even stronger, it's incapable of error. One can have inerrancy without infallibility. In other words, I can write a paper, which I have never done, but I can write a paper that is absolutely true and perfect in every way, right? I can write one that is everything in it's true, everything in it's perfect. My grammar is even correct, believe it or not. I can write that without error, a paper without error, but that does not mean I'm infallible. I can make an error. So we can have inerrancy without infallibility, but we cannot, we cannot have infallibility without inerrancy. God is incapable of making an error. And God has inspired his word, and therefore his word is without error. His word is inerrant, it's infallible. Next word, the word of God is authoritative. It has all authority. What I mean by this is all the words in Scripture are God's words. Therefore, to disobey those words is to disobey or disbelieve God. All the words in Scripture are God's words. To disobey it is to disbelieve or disobey God. 
The nature of Scripture itself demands obedience. If God says it, we do it, right? We have to come to the Word to say, this Word is God's authoritative Word to us. This is the great issue in our society and it has been for some time. Where is my authority? What do I put myself under? You know, that's, that's exactly, we were talking to my kids just this week. They're going through school. They're working through science, talking about the idea of evolution. Ultimately, that's what it's all about. If we can deny that God created this world and God made everything, then we don't have to put ourselves under the authority of God. We can become our own authority. If we can deny Genesis 1 through 3, right? If we can deny Genesis 1 and 2, then we can decide whatever we want to decide. We become the arbitrators. We don't have to put ourselves under that authority. The world is trying to deny who God is and deny the power of his word and the truth of his word because they don't want to be under the authority of his word. And so ultimately, this idea is if these are God's words that we believe they are, then we must listen to them and obey them. We must listen to them and obey them, and tonight we'll be disobedient to God himself. The Bible is clear. The clarity of Scripture. The Bible is clear to all who read it, seeking God's help and being willing to follow. This is a fancy word called perpiscuity. In other words, the Bible is not some jumbled mess that's hard for us to understand. From the youngest of age to the oldest, the Bible is clear about what is expected. The Bible is clear about what is expected from God's people, and the Bible is sufficient. The Bible is sufficient. Because it's inspired by God and given to us by God, the Bible contains all the words that God intended for his people to have. I I, I spent time teaching in India and teaching pastors there, it was always so interesting to hear the questions they would ask. They would always want to know these questions. For example, uh, in India, in their, in their culture and place, snakes have this connotation about them, right? And so when you get to the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, they want to know about that serpent. And they keep asking questions about that serpent. And finally, I have to say, look, if the Lord wanted you to know where the serpent came from, and if the Lord wanted you to know what he was doing there and how he got in there, the Lord would have told you that. But you don't need to know that to understand what the Bible is all about. You don't need to have all that. The Bible contains everything you need to know. And if it doesn't contain it, then you don't need it. Then you don't need it. So it contains everything you need to know. You can rest assured that he has not hidden anything from you. He has not kept something from you that that, that would help you in this process. Everything you need for life and salvation is contained in God's word. Everything you need. And that's what we mean when we say the Bible is sufficient. It has everything we need for life and salvation. If it's God's word, inspired by God, it's without error because God is incapable of error. And it's clear for us. We don't need, it's not hard for us to understand. It is clear. And it's authoritative for us. Therefore, to obey it because it is clear, we hear it, we must obey it because it's God's word and it is sufficient. It's everything we need. It's everything that we need. The Bible's one book, one author, and as I said this past Sunday, it is one subject. The Bible is about redemption. Even if you have, even if you look at the the nature of how the scripture lays out, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, right? You use that even thing. Think about that for a second. Creation and fall is contained in how many chapters of the Bible? Three. Genesis 1, 2, creation. Fall, Genesis 3. Creation, 
fall. Redemption, if you even go to consummation, the end, is contained in how many chapters? I can make an argument that's contained, contained in two. Revelation 21, 22. How everything's brought together, right? The redemption part is Genesis 4 all the way to Revelation 20 of how God is redeeming his people. The story of the Bible is not one about how we find God. It's about how God has found us and how God has come to us, how he has redeemed us, how he has saved us, what he has done to bring us back to himself even though we have left him. That's what the whole story of Scripture is. Jesus Christ and the salvation offered in him. There's a couple parts to this. A couple parts of this I want to point out. First, we've got to understand quickly about the difference between general revelation and special revelation. I'm giving you all the primer. Again, we're just stretching, getting our hamstrings stretched out. If you're anything like me, that's going to take some time. But, but, but no, we're going to visit all of these again. General revelation is mentioned in Romans 1. It's what we see in the world, right? It's how we look at a sunrise, or when the earth turns in such a way so that the sun comes into um, sight for us. It's how we look at a sunrise, and what do we say? God is good. And Romans 1 tells us we see his creation, and we recognize his majesty and his power in it, right? So we can look at creation, and we know there's a designer who made this, and he is great. He's powerful. We know that. It comes to us when we see his creation. That's general revelation. General revelation is seen in how we as a people create things like cell phones and other things of how, how God has equipped us as he is the creator. We can't create anything out of nothing, but we can take what he has created and we create things. We make because we're in the image of God. That's that general revelation working out in us. Special revelation is God's word itself. Special revelation is what's needed for us to have salvation. We don't look at the sunrise or a beautiful mountain scene and we don't go, man, look at that. I'm so thankful Jesus died of my sins. See what it says? The mountain scene doesn't tell me Jesus died for my sins. The mountain scene tells me that there's a God who is great, who's bigger than me, more majestical than me, and more powerful than me. But it doesn't tell me that Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, came, died on the cross in my place, took my sins upon himself, conquered death and hell, and then rose again on the third day. That's A mountain scene doesn't tell me that, right? God's Word tells me that. That's that special revelation that is needed for us to have life and salvation. So we see general revelations, what we see in, out there. Special revelations, what we have here in God's Word. How He has specifically told us where we have life and salvation. But this revelation comes to us in a way that is progressive. Now, that's not always a great word, but Genesis chapter 3 doesn't just spit out there that once the fall happens... God doesn't say, all right, I'm going to give this about 1,200, 1,400 years, and then I'm going to send Jesus, born of a virgin, in Bethlehem, and he's going to come, he's going to teach and cast some demons out into some pigs and heal some people and do some stuff, and he's going to all this other stuff, and he's going to die. Right? He doesn't just come out to bat and say that, does he? He tells us in Genesis 3.15, the thesis of all of Scripture. We'll get to that. He tells us there's going to come one serpent who's going to crush your head. That doesn't tell us everything we need to know, but he gives us a little glimpse, doesn't he? We're looking for that serpent crusher. And then every story after that gives us more of a glimpse and more of a glimpse and more of a glimpse. In other words, revelation for us is progressive, if you will. Now, I have some good illustrations about this, some of my favorite that you might hear a thousand times. 
Anybody ever remember, what time is it? Oh, 7.18, this is a good one. Anybody ever remember or do remember Bob Ross? Y'all know Bob Ross? Had a fro, old man, pinky nails are about that long, and had a TV show on PBS painting pictures. Y'all know Bob? Good. So Bob Ross is painting pictures. I used to be fascinated back when we only had four channels. Amen. You had to flip the channels and you found PBS and nothing else was on and there was Bob Ross. And I was like, man, this is fascinating. I do not have an artsy bone in my body, but watching people do that just like blows my mind. I, I used to remember watching Bob Ross. He'd take that plain canvas and he'd start and he goes, well, let's just start right here. And he would take his thing and he'd just go top to bottom like that. And you know what I'm thinking? He just messed up. Ain't no way he's going to fix that, you know? It's awful looking. Before long, Bob Ross, with every stroke, he's talking it. Happy little tree here. Glad little deer down here by the creek, river. Put a couple mountains here with some snow on it. This is happy. And so Bob Ross is working it through. In every stroke of this picture, right, it brings it more into focus. And you start saying, he didn't mess up, man. He's, a, like, he's bringing it all together. He's bringing it all together. And then by the time you finish this whole thing, every brush strokes, one stroke added, one stroke added, one stroke added, until finally it's this beautiful picture of a couple mountains, a couple trees, a couple deer by the river. All of them are like that, by the way. <laughs> the Word of God, especially the Old Testament, that's what it is. Every story is a different brush stroke. Every story is just a different little strike and a different little brushstroke and another one here. And, another. and sometimes you look at it and go, man, this thing's messed up. There's no way this is going to be fixed. But here comes another one. And here comes another one. And here comes another one. And you think, here he is. David comes in. you got this brushstroke. Here comes the king that's going to crush the head of the serpent. Man, he messes up. No way this is going to be fixed. Here comes him, Solomon. That's his son. This is going to be the one. Look, he's smart. He's talking about cutting babies in half and it solves the problem. And this is going to be the one. He's going to fix it. Then he messes up. And every single time it's just another brushstroke until finally what? The picture is complete. And Matthew says, Matthew says, here comes the one, Jesus, who was born of a virgin, who came to save his people from their sins. Every brushstroke, every story in the Old Testament is another brushstroke that is painting the picture of Christ for us of redemption. So it's a progression that gives us into that picture of who he is. And when you read the Old Testament, you start to see that he's going to be a serpent crusher. He's going to come and he's going to bring land back and make his people great and bless them. He's going to come and he's going to be the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's going to be the king that's after God's own heart. He's going to be the one that's going to slay the giant for his people on their behalf. He's going to be the one wiser than anybody else. And every story just tells us more about who Christ is until finally when the New Testament comes, it's bam, it's here he is. This is the one. Jesus says the kingdom has come. When you read the Bible, when you read the Bible, I, I, I make another reference culture. So if you don't like this movie, don't get mad at me. And I'm going to go ahead and let you know it's like 20-something years old, so I'm going to spoil it for you, okay? I, I'm past the place where I don't have to spoil this. There was a movie out called Sixth Sense. I don't know if you ever heard this. 
uh, seen it. And you watch this movie, and the guy who directs it has this real uncanny knack of putting twists in there that change everything that you don't pick up on, right? And so you're watching this movie the whole time, and you're going, man, this is kind of a weird, weird movie, and everything about it. And then at the end, Bruce Willis, you know, Bruce Willis is sitting there, and all of a sudden, he realizes something, what? He's dead. The whole movie long, Bruce Willis has been talking and running around, and he's dead. And I'm going, oh man, I watched the movie a second time and there's like 10 billion things that you can notice that tells you he's dead. You don't pick up on it on the first time, right? <laughs> Nobody else in the movie sees him or notices him except his son. Nobody else even notices he's there. Every time his son's in his presence, he has cold breath. I mean, over and over again, you're like, oh gosh, I should have picked up on this, right? Well, so it is with the Bible. Once you see Christ as the center of it all, you can never read the Bible again the same way. Every story becomes about him. Every story. I once had a friend that was in a younger guy who came to my church in seminary, and he came up to seminary, and he was telling me a story. He went to North Greenville, and he came to Christianity like at 18 out of rough, and he never read the Bible. So when he came to Christianity, he just decided to start reading the Bible. And he started in Genesis 1, because that's where you start, right? In the beginning. He started in Genesis 1, and he got all the way up through Judges, and he started reading He started reading Leviticus, and then he started in He's like, okay, this is, this is something here. And he got to the Nazarite vow. Y'all know what the Nazarite vow is? Don't let a razor touch your body. Don't eat any fruit of the vine. And don't go to see any dead people. So he says, that's what I'm going to do. I'm reading my Bible. I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm going, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. So he calls his mom. Mom, I'm taking the Nazarite vow. I am not going to cut my hair. And for the next two years, if you die, I'm not coming to the funeral. Just letting you know. Can't be around dead people. And so he took the Nazarite vow. Let everybody know he's taking the Nazarite vow and he's doing it, you know, he's doing all of this. He lets everybody know. And then he keeps reading. And he's like, uh-oh. <laughs> this is pointing me to something else, right? Maybe I shouldn't have taken the Nazarite vow. In his stern, he's very stern sense of responsibility, he kept it. He looked like... Uh, what was that rat that was on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Uh, the Splinter. I don't know if y'all remember that one. That's a good one. He didn't, his beard was awful. It's like a patch here and a patch here and down here. And his hair got halfway down his back. And he stayed like that, God help him. Because he took the Nazarite vow. If he'd have just waited and read a little further, he would have realized that Christ Jesus is the vow we take, right? That this is pointing us to something greater. And so when we look to Scripture, we recognize that when we know that Christ is the center of it, when we know He's the center of all of it, then it changes every way we read it. It changes everything. And so we read it with Him at the center, knowing that that's what we're moving toward. Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. The plain meaning of the text is what we're after. You'll hear me say that all the time. What does the Bible say? Don't try to make it more complicated than what it says. What's the Bible say for us? The plain meaning. Scripture's the best interpreter of Scripture. Don't, don't miss the forest by focusing in on the trees. A lot of times we focus in on the story that's there in the Bible, and we miss what's happening in the greater part of it and where that story fits into the grand narrative. These are ways that we come and things we must remember as we look to it. I want to point out one thing. i got five minutes left or some odd. 
in Joshua chapter, and it won't always be this long. It's the first night, and y'all are here. You may not come back. <laughs> Joshua chapter uh, 3, and I'm going to have to, I'll speed it up and tell you what happens. Y'all remember Jericho, right? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Walls came tumbling down. The Lord said in Jericho, you put everything under the ban. In other words, you don't take anything for yourself. I'm the one who's taking care of you, the Lord said. You don't need their gold. You don't need their food. You don't need their stuff. I'm taking care of you. So it was an act of obedience now for them to watch the walls crumble, take Jericho, and move on to the next place. But there was this dude named Achan, A-C-H-A-N. And Achan comes up, and he's walking through Jericho, which was a wealthy city. And what does he do? He starts going, this gold will be nice. And so what does Achan do? He starts stuffing the gold in his robe, and he's hiding it out. And he tells his sons, go grit some of the gold. You know, go grab the gold. They won't know. Nobody will get it. And so they're grabbing the gold in the chaos of the walls, and they're taking it back to their tent, and they pull up their rug, and they dig out a hole, and they put the gold under the rug, and they're happy, thinking, man, we are set. They go off to the next city, Ai, spelled that way. And they go to Ai, a small little town. It wasn't anything like Jericho with its fortified walls and huge. They go to Ai, and it's a small little crossroads of a place. And when they go to Ai, what happens? They're defeated. Several thousand men lose their life, and they lose at Ai. Well, the Lord said, this is y'all's land. How are we going to lose at Ai? Joshua goes, what have you done to me? I'm trusting you, Lord. I'm being faithful to you. You told me in chapter 1 that if I stay close to your word, right? You told me if I stay close to your word, I will have success. You told me all those things. I'm trusting you, Lord, and we just lost at Ai? He said, you need to go check under Achan's tent. <laughs> Goes and checks under Achan's tent. And if y'all uh, remember correctly, underneath Achan's tent, was the gold. And there in, in Joshua chapter 7, Joshua goes to Achan and said, all right, it's your fault. Come with me. And Joshua takes Achan and his family in, in verse 22. And he takes them out just to read this passage. He takes all of his sons and daughters. He takes his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, everything he had. He grabs all of it up and they brought them to the Valley of Achor, A-C-H-O-R, which means Valley of Trouble. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised him over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. The judgment of God is real. The wrath of God is sure against sin and disobedience. The Valley of Achor is there now. Flip with me over a little bit if you want to flip or you can just hang on to Hosea. In Hosea, y'all know the story of Hosea. Hosea is told to marry a woman named Gomer, and Gomer was a prostitute. And their life is going to become this picture, a parable, if you will, of Israel and the Lord and their relationship. And, and uh, Hosea is faithful to Gomer, but Gomer is unfaithful to Hosea. 
And she goes out, as the scriptures say, with many lovers, if you will, and even has children with other men. And so she's disobedient. She's gone to them and had children. And the Lord says she's conceived and she has three. There in verse 6 of chapter 1, it says she conceived again, bore a daughter. And the Lord says, call, call to him the Ruhamah. Call her name no mercy. Because I'm given no mercy. And then he goes a little bit longer and she has another one and says, call this one not my people. Because they are not mine. So God pronounces this judgment on it and saying, because she has run off in this spiritual adultery picture and committed adultery and she has children with other men, these children are no mercy and not my children. And then chapter 2 lays out all the unfaithfulness. It lays out everything. And the Lord comes to this place where he's ready to pronounce judgment on Gomer and say, it is over. I'm bringing judgment to you. But instead it flips in chapter 2 of Hosea. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. When at time it says, I'm gonna, you're expecting judgment, just like with, with Achan, instead he says, I will allure her. I'm going to call her out. I'm going to woo her out. Wooing is a good word. I learned that word from Andy Griffith. Um, um, and so I'm going to woo her back to myself. You think judgment is coming? And the Lord says, no. And in fact, he says, I'm going to plant flowers for her. And I'm going to sing to her. When you think judgment should come, the Lord says, no, I'm going to welcome her. I'm going to bring flowers for her. I'm going to welcome her back. But listen to what it says in verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her or woo her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her, say loving words to her, and there I will give her her vineyards and make, listen, the valley of Achor a door of hope. The Lord is saying, I'm going to take her back to the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble. And instead of bringing trouble, stoning her and burning her that she deserves, I'm going to bring flowers to her. And I'm going to call her back to myself. Instead of divorcing her, I'm going to bring her back. I'm going to turn her trouble, her valley of trouble, into acres of hope, if you will. Well, in Peter, we find out here how he brings this together. And I close with this. In Peter, 1 Peter, he talks about how the Lord has come. The stone that was rejected is the cornerstone that we live on. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone of stumbling, a rock of defense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, lo ruhamah, right? Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, Lorama, you were that one, but now you have received mercy. In other words, when we put this all together, what has Christ done for us? But went into our valley of trouble where we deserve stoning and burning and death. He went into our valley of trouble and there he wooed us back to himself. He took us who were not his people and he made us his people. He took us who did not know mercy or should not have mercy and he gave us mercy. He gave us mercy. The stones that were used to throw at 
aching to put him to death, and now a heap is there, we have another stone that is our cornerstone, that is the foundation of our life. And those of us who deserve trouble in the Valley of Acre, the Lord has wooed us back to himself. And the scriptures teach us this over and over again. And that's what we hope to see as we start in Genesis 1 and continue throughout. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. It is so good. And help us to live by it and follow it with everything we have. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you all so much for being here. We'll see you all Sunday. I expect that. And next week. we got a couple weeks at least, so it doesn't look like I was terrible. Okay.